Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Hello everyone, welcome back to First Fast Radio Bursts. Um, we've been going through our ultra-fast radio bursts where we do short segments on various different topics in astronomy. Currently, we're going through future space missions for exploration of the solar system specifically. Um, and today we're going to be talking about Artemis. And I have with me Connor. Hi, Connor. How are you doing? Hi, Nick. I'm I am good. How are great you? as well. Um, I'm really excited to uh, have this discussion about Artemis. Um, as our listeners would understand, things are a bit flipped today. Generally, when we do science epi episodes like this, Connor's the one who is hosting, and I am the one who's doing the discussion of the topic. But we flipped the script a little bit because Connor was very, very excited about Artemis. And I was like, I would like Connor to um, do the research on this one. <laughs> I, I really wanted to cover this one. I'm looking forward. We need we need boots on the moon. So yeah. Um, so this time it's going to be Connor enlightening us with um, space exploration, specifically lunar exploration. Um, let's go through the timeline a little bit before we get into Artemis. Um, this episode is, of course, about Artemis lunar exploration. Then next we go on to the James Webb Space Telescope, which is technically a part of space exploration, but not the way you generally explore space or think of space exploration. It's going to be launching a telescope in space and so exploring the whole universe instead of just the solar system. Um, and we're going to stay there for a couple of episodes and then we're going to move on to Dragonfly mission. That's going to be the third one, which I think is going to be the last one. And then we'll start a new series of ultra-fast radio bursts. So yeah, let's dive into our topic today. So yeah, Connor, let's start with sort of the bottom shelf uh, explanation of what Artemis is. All right. So Artem the name Artemis for the project is, is really quite telling. Artemis in Greek mythology is the twin sister of Apollo. And as we know, Apollo was the set of missions that first brought people to the moon Artemis, the twin sister, is going to also be bringing uh -huh. us to the moon. So cool. good choice there. <laughs> um, the Artemis program, the goal is really to um, restart our exploration of the moon, get the first woman mm. on the moon and the next man yeah. on the moon. I was recently interviewed on, on something about the Chinese lunar mission that recently just finished and brought back samples from from the moon and one of the questions on the interview was um if you think about it the lunar excitement has almost gone down and i'm guessing artemis is sort of reigniting that excitement on the moon that's one of the key yeah. goals of the artemis mission is to sort of inspire yeah. a new generation of yeah. space goers and also 
a whole bunch of technical things, which we will yeah. briefly touch on today. There's so much to talk about, but we're going <laughs> to try and stick to the highlights. Yeah. Um, so the the basics of the Artemis mission, I've already said that they want to actually get people on the surface of the moon, but it also includes a lunar gateway. So this will be a space station that orbits the moon instead mm-hmm. of orbiting Earth. And this will, it's a gateway, so it, it's sort of the branching off point where astronauts would come from the Earth, uh, rendezvous with the gateway, and sort mm-hmm. of get, get settled. And then they'd be able to make uh, trips mm-hmm. down to the moon and then back up to the gateway. So it's sort of the intermediate point. So the, the goal of the Lunar Gateway is to keep people in space, but now step up the difficulty one more level. Okay. Low Earth orbit, it can take... Low Earth orbit, where the International Space Station is, it can take a matter of hours to uh, get back to Earth in, the ma- in an emergency yeah. scenario. Going to the moon means mm-hmm. it's now days. So every, every, every challenge is now harder because you have to design for the worst case scenario. And that worst case scenario now involves a huge delay between a problem yeah, and civilization. So how are we going to try and overcome this? Is it just be a lot more careful or is there something more advanced? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're being a lot more careful at every yeah. ste- step. New spacesuits mm-hmm. are being designed. These spacesuits are hopefully going to uh, provide lots more range of motion and they're gonna have to be lighter because unlike the spacesuits we're using now the astronauts are actually going to have to walk around in them Uh, on on the international space station your legs are mostly just weight that you carry around with you Um, but on the moon you actually get to use your legs so uh, there's there's difficulty there with um, keeping the range of motion while also keeping the suits pressurized Mm -hmm. and the suits are kind of like balloons when they're filled with air, they want to expand and stretch mm. out, but the astronauts want to be able to bend their arms and turn and turn in and move their legs. So there's all sorts of uh, work that's been done on creating smooth bearings that let them move around relatively easily while in in pressure inside huh. this uh, suit. Because of course it's vacuum outside. Um... Yeah, so let's talk about a couple of things over here. First of all, where is this lunar gateway going to go with respect to landers on the moon? And and secondly, I mean, I'm assuming most of our listeners are Canadians. And so what is Canada? How is Canada involved in, in the lunar gateway mission? Right. So the, the lunar gateway will be mm-hmm. orbiting the moon and it's going to have to be constructed uh by multiple launches, it's harder to get material from Earth way up to the moon than it is to get to low Earth orbit. And even at low Earth orbit, the International Space Station had to be constructed in pieces. So uh, one of the contributions that Canada is providing to the Lunar Gateway is the Canadarm3, which will be one of the uh, instruments that the astronauts use in order to piece the Lunar Gateway right. together, one, one launch to piece at a time. And Canadarm3 sort of gives you an indication that Canada has a legacy right, with this sort of so thing. Where we're one and two. Well, those were on the International uh, Space Station. And so we're, we're building on that expertise. Each one gets better than the last. And uh, so that, that's going to be one of Canada's major mm-hmm. contributions. Okay. Um, yeah, go for so, 
So the lunar gateway is is that intermediate place between Earth and the moon's surface. The place on the moon's surface that seems to be the main choice right now is what's called Shackleton mm -hmm. Crater. It's on the south pole of the moon, and it has some really interesting properties. First of all, the other lunar missions only went to the mm -hmm. lunar equator. So now we're going to one of the poles. It's a relatively different environment. Um, but also, there, there are craters, this Shackleton Crater, uh, where they receive sunlight all the right. time. So they, they're poking up from the South Pole, and so they're always receiving sunlight, which is really helpful if you want to use solar panels to power your space station. But also, the inside of the crater is then always in shade. So the rim of the crater always gets sun, the inside is always in shade, and it's possible, perhaps even likely, that there is water ice in this in right. this crater, which, I mean, water is a great material to have around when you want to survive. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Okay, so now let's assume that we are able to do all of this successfully. Um, there's still one big hurdle that kind of, or one big question that is still in front of us. How do we get people from the Earth to the moon yeah that's kind of the big question eh because um it's it's a lot of work to get stuff just to low earth orbit it's it costs like ten thousand dollars per kilogram to get material to the yeah. international space station but if you want to get to the moon it's it's even harder you've got to push even further out of earth's gravitational field so uh nasa is working on the sls or the space launch system it's a truly gigantic rocket, 98 meters tall. It's taller than the Statue <laughs> of Liberty and weighs and weighs about 4 million kilograms. So this is this is a building that's going to pick itself up <laughs> off the ground. And let, let's just remind our, our, our listeners over here, you need to accelerate yourself to 11 kilometers a second to be able to launch something from the Earth. Yes. So quite the achievement so this uh this rocket has just a whole bunch of big numbers associated with it it's creating a huge amount of thrust in order to lift itself up and even that's not enough so they attach two solid rocket boosters on the side mm -hmm. those solid rocket boosters burn through about six tons of material per second and launch it out the back so it's is really moving um it's able to at, at the end when you want to get to the moon it's able to carry about 27 tons to the moon. Now, um, those of you who uh, really follow uh, sort of space history might say, wait a sec, that's, that's smaller even than the Saturn V. And yes, the Saturn, the Saturn V, which ran the Apollo missions, was, was a, a monster even from the SLS perspective. It, <laughs> it, could, it could carry about 49 tons to the moon. Oh, wow. So not, okay. not quite double. But uh, this is the first iteration of the SLS that will carry 27 mm -hmm. tons. They're going to improve on it with time, and their plans are to get up to about 46 tons, which would be basically equivalent to the Saturn V, which is the biggest rocket that's ever flown. Right. Uh, so, oh, one other, thing I, one other thing I want to mention about the SLS is that it's a little bit more environmentally conscious than a lot of other rockets out there. So... The, the main stage, that big orange tube that you see when you look at the, uh, at the rocket, that's yeah. actually filled with liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. So when it's burning, 
actually what comes out the back is steam. It's, <laughs> it's just water. Very nice. That's yeah. That's some engineering uh, improvisation. I will say that. So, how yeah. much energy compared to just regular fuel? Would that well, generate? so it's kind of complicated to work out exactly what uh, what the comparison between different fuels mm -hmm. is. Generally, the metric that you're going for is uh, this impulse in seconds. And okay. um, the higher the number, the better. Hydrogen is one of the best because hydrogen itself is such a tiny atom. And so yeah. it doesn't take much work to get kick it up to a really high speed. So right. hydrogen on paper looks great, but it does have some challenges. It has to be cooled way lower than other fuels. So yeah. you have to have extra insulation to keep it cold. Also, uh, it's pretty light. That's part of it being small, which means you need a larger tank of the material in order to get enough of it to launch you into space. So there, there's all yeah. sorts of engineering trade-offs that come into play. But the SLS is building off a lot of um, legacy understanding that NASA has from the space shuttle. And so they're, they're sort of just carrying on uh, a lot of those technologies and hydrogen is the is the fuel of choice Fair enough. okay um right before we go to the break let's very quickly sort of set up some sort of a timeline as to what are we looking at when it comes to putting people on the moon when is the first person going to land on the moon that's the big question Connor. that's really the big question and i'll tell you the timeline but i'll also tell you that i don't believe it <laughs> um so <laughs> So the SLS, its first launch test will be later this year, uh, okay. sometime in November. That much is pretty secure because there's a few parts on the SLS that their warranty will expire <laughs> later this year. And so they need, they need to light that candle before, um, before any of the warranties expire and they have to disassemble right. it and put in new parts. So um, they, they're definitely going to be launching something later this year. But then beginning next year, the, the hope is to start uh, sending equipment and materials out to the moon because if you want people to survive, you know, they need things. Um, then sometime around 2023, the hope is to do a sort of like full mission profile test where you actually send people out to the moon and take, take them right back. You just do right. a mission to go out to the moon, orbit it for a little while, and then, then come back. Right. This so will just kind of like early Apollo missions would just orbit the moon. In case exactly, yeah. You, you just want to test that everything works and you don't want to push it too hard. Then, yeah. then 2024, the plan is boots on the moon. Someone actually mm -hmm. being on the moon in person, but only for a short stay. And towards the end of the 2020s, early 2030s, the hope is to have some sort of permanent base or presence on the right. moon just like we do on the international space yeah Station. so the right. the hope the goal actually is not to have permanent like there's always someone on the moon or there's right. always someone on the lunar gateway yeah. but the goal is to have often a person on the moon okay. or on the gateway Fair enough. all right i think this is a good place to take a break um unless you have something else to add no. Oh, great. Um, all right. So we'll take a break and we will be right back. And then next we'll ask Connor what the vision for the Lunar Gateway is. Hello there. 
I'm just stopping by to quickly let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and our website. Links to all of these are in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. I would also like to mention some of the other great resources out there. In the podcast description, you will find links to the McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap program. They are all excellent programs to bring the universe down to Earth. And with that, let's get back to it. All right, welcome back. Um, so right before the break, we sort of did a basic overview of, of what the Artemis mission is. And now we're going to try and dive into why we want to get reinterested or reignite our interest into the moon. Um, so Connor, let's start with why would we want to go to the moon again? I mean, we've already been there. Let's let's go to Mercury. Well, it's too hot. Okay, Mars. Let's go to Mars. Why All the right, moon so, specifically? So you're you're preempting one of the main goals of the Artemis program, and it really is, um, as as stated on the NASA website, demonstrate new technologies, capabilities, and business approaches needed for future exploration, including Mars. So, <laughs> there we go. So as, as as exciting as the moon is, and we'll get into some of the exciting things you can do on the moon. Um, the goal is always forward looking. We're we're mm-hmm. thinking about Mars. We're thinking about the next steps, the new frontiers. But uh, the lunar gateway and the moon base; those are all demonstrators and gateways to the rest of the solar system so uh these these technologies are are going to be proving or helping us get to mars technologically but also just like testing out the things that we think could work on mars closer to home um also goals uh of going to the moon are to broaden commercial and international partnerships so this is a this is a huge challenge. No country can take it on on their own, and so uh, this is going to be an international collaboration. And unlike the first moon mission, and unlike the International Space Station, there's going to be fairly heavy commercial elements right. to the to the Lunar Gateway. So there will be, as well as the SLS that NASA is developing, there will also be launches and hardware sent by commercial launch providers, and also whole bits of equipment. Uh, built by commercial partners. So the hope right. the hope is to get more of the world involved, not just uh, governments. Right. So just with this vision, you, you sort of put forward two very important points that we need to discuss. And let's start with what are we going to, yes, we're going to test things on the moon for, for sort of expanding it or extrapolating it to further systems and uh, further objects in the solar system. But what exactly are we going to do on right. the moon? So... Uh, to actually, the actual like specifics of what we're going to be testing on the moon is all sorts of all sorts of little technologies that maybe we have we have right now, but we don't know how they work in a low gravity vacuum environment with lots of dust everywhere because lunar dust is is really nasty. We've we've discussed this in a different yeah. podcast where the lunar dust isn't the simple smooth grains that we're used to here on earth it's more like shards that can scratch at like a really small scale level all of your equipment but also they want to find water so that's why they're going to the shackleton crater 
because it's very likely going to have a certain amount of water mixed in with the regolith. And so how do you extract that water? How do you purify it so that people can drink it? There's also um, lots of oxygen on the moon, which seems a little counterintuitive. There's no atmosphere. There's there's no oxygen. But actually, there's, there's a huge amount of oxygen on the moon. It's just stuck in oxides. An oxide mm-hmm. everyone is familiar with is rust, but there's also silicon oxide, which uh, you might know as quartz. There's titanium oxide. So there's there's lots of uh, materials that are sort of bound with the oxygen. Separating those two, the oxygen and iron in the rust, you get yeah. you get a win-win situation. You get oxygen that you can breathe and iron that you can use to build stuff that you now didn't have to take up from Earth. Because every kilogram that you bring from Earth is costing you a lot of money. Any kilogram that you can find on the moon is... Yeah, you might as well yeah. use it there. And there's, there's a lot of kilograms on the moon. So the hope is to the hope is to use as much material as we can from the moon. But uh, the processes that do that here on Earth either yeah. require a, a lot of uh, other chemicals or uh, fossil fuels, which... Mm. Um, those are heavy in their own right, so we don't really want to bring those. Yeah. Some some other options involve a whole lot of electricity. Another reason to go to Shackleton Crater, they've yeah, got yeah. year-round sunshine, lots yeah. of energy to work with. So um, one one of the big goals is to sort of figure out what's what is scalable and what can work to extract these different materials. There's right. there's also like other sort of stretch goals. For those of you who are big on GoFundMe type stuff. Um, (laughs) So the moon has a lot of helium-3 on it. And we we know this because of all the solar radiation that the moon Mm -hmm. experiences. Helium-3 is actually a really promising fuel for nuclear fusion. Uh, But it's very diffusely spread across the lunar surface. So... If, if we can collect it, it's going to be pretty challenging. We're probably going to have to process large sur- sections of the surface of the moon in order to collect enough helium-3 to do anything with. So the question is, is that even feasibly doable, or would we rather mm. just put up more solar panels? Yeah, so, I guess this is, this is going to be one of those um, experiments that essentially starts with the Artemis, but sort of matures towards the midlife slash late life of Artemis, given given the scope of it. Um, nuclear fusion is something that we've been chasing as, 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 as a human race for a very long time. Well, as time. they've been saying, every year, nuclear fusion is 50 years away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I guess this is going to be a long-term experiment planned for, for a few decades. Yes, but the right. goal of Artemis is to have staying power, to be on the moon for right. a long time, to sort of build up resources that future missions can then expand on. So mm. uh, right now there's, there's no landing site on the moon. So yeah. whatever you land on the moon has to have legs that are prepared to handle different thicknesses of the lunar regolith. You've got to, mm. you got to be really careful when you go to land on the moon, but if you have yeah. a landing pad, you can have simpler and sturdier legs that don't weigh as much. So now you can carry more material to the moon. Yeah, so there, there's sort of a building process here where each step would be able to help the next step. And that's that's just one yeah. example. That um, is great. Um, so yeah, the second thing that we, we started right after the break that was fairly interesting and I think 
needs some sort of discussion is is sort of the politics that that goes into um a a mission like this because you think about it these are this is a multinational but also not just governmental but government plus commercial slash private companies together so how does sort of the politics of this mission come in place the politics are a a huge part of a, a mission like this to the moon the goal is to build up more than just touching down picking up a rock and bringing it back the goal yeah. is to really build up a presence that's going to, in some way, sustain itself, collect material from the moon. So uh, part of the Artemis mission is these Artemis Accords, which have been signed by uh, several countries so far, but still working on getting other countries to join in. Um, right. But to explain the Artemis Accords, first I have to explain something uh, from back in the 1960s which mm. is the Outer Space Treaty. And the Outer Space Treaty has been signed by every, every country that has anything to do with space and a bunch more. So uh, the Outer Space Treaty sets out the foundation for humanity's exploration of space and our activities in space. And it is very clear and absolute, space must be used for peaceful purposes. There can be, there can be no weapons. Um, yeah. And also that no one can claim sovereignty over objects in space. You can't land on the moon, plant a flag, and say, this is, this is the U.S. now. nationality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, no one's allowed to do that. All yeah. of space is for all of humanity. That's one of the core tenets of the Outer Space Treaty. Um, so that's, that's the foundation that we're starting from. But mm. that was also created in the 1960s. And... Yeah. Our, under, our understanding of what can be done in space has evolved. And yeah. even in the Outer Space Treaty, they, kn they knew that this was going to happen. So the language of the Outer Space Treaty essentially says, like, this is a building block for future policy. Ar Artemis, yeah. the Artemis Accords is trying to be one of these future policies that everyone acknowledges. And um, one of the key elements of the Artemis Accords is how do we deal with people that want to uh, mine things out in space. Yeah, so, presumably because this is sort of a commercial uh, agreement slash commercial marriage with government, there's just definitely going to be some sort of look on business. Well, on yeah, and there, there's huge potential for mining in space. Uh, not yeah. only does it help with your exploration, because now you don't have to carry as much up there, but there are asteroids out there that have nearly as much gold as we've ever extracted here yeah. on Earth single asteroids yeah. so um th there's a lot of potential out there but yeah. as it is right now the treaty is very clear you can't do anything it's uh, it's just you d you can't claim any objects in space the artemis accords are taking one step in the direction of the mining and mm -hmm. they they spell out that you're allowed to do mining and use space resources but only for facilitating other space activities so you can okay. build you can build a moon base with moon material but you can't then bring that material back and start selling it um as as like moon iron or something right so so they they're not they're not opening the door for anyone to just start mining and making money off of asteroids they're really 
uh, sort of taking taking a small step and saying, look, using materials that we find out in space can really help with our space exploration. Making a moon base out of moon materials will be much cheaper and faster than trying to fly every piece up ourselves. Yeah, $10,000 a kilogram, I guess. So yeah. You've got to do something out yeah. there. So, so that's, that's the direction that... Um, that they're taking with these accords. They also uh, reaffirm in the accords that uh, space should only be used for peaceful purposes and that all operations in space should be transparent. So you you can't just land on some spot and start building your base. You've got to tell all the other countries in the in the treaty, like, hey, I'm planning to do something here and I'm going to build it this big yeah. and basically tell them ahead of time what you're what you plan to do. So everybody knows what everyone else is doing in space. Um, there's also a fair bit of language about what they call harmful interference. So uh, this might be one of the points where people take a little bit of a um, little bit of issue. So yeah. the accords talk about uh, how you have to refrain from harmful interference. So once a base is set up, say, oh, I don't know, Artemis. <laughs> um, <laughs> A, another uh, space mission can't just land on top of your lander. Um, so, you you if you're if you're going to go to the moon, sure the moon is for everyone, but you can't mess with my equipment <laughs> while it's on the moon. And yes. so they they set up safety zones around any sort of moon base where they say um, if you're going to enter in this space, you got to let me know. I I um I can't stop you from going anywhere on the moon because it's it's everyone's property. But you're going to have to give me a bit of uh, leeway here in yeah. uh, allowing you into this space because I've got a whole lot of operations going on. So, right. so the the harmful interference element is sort of how do you get people to uh, work together in a space that they both kind of own, but only one of them is using significantly yeah. right now and and trade-offs around there yeah i guess at this point the way you're describing um these accords it looks like there might be plans to put more than one base on the moon um well they certainly extent. want to keep their options open because as i as i mentioned there's yeah. there's a lot of oxygen iron silicon even titanium on the moon there's a mm-hmm. lot of materials on the moon and so as as we evolve in our abilities in space and our understanding of what sort of commercial activities are okay, it, it may turn out that <laughs> the moon is really profitable. <laughs> um, so they, they want, this is, this is the U S putting it together and they want to keep their options open. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of think of these Artemis Accords as a technology in its own right, as much mm. as rockets and landers, because when you have multiple countries that are spacefaring that all want to use territory that is in principle owned by everyone, um, yeah. you're, you're going to run into conflict. And so the Artemis Accords are almost like a technology for preventing conflict. Yeah, fair enough. At least that's the hope. <laughs> uh, I, sh- I should have mentioned uh, Russia hasn't signed it. And Russia is one of the other major spacefaring uh, right. countries. They, they say it's too U.S. centric and it, yeah. it really is written around the Artemis program and its mm-hmm. language is built for that. So they have some arguments there and hopefully hopefully some healthy discussion can come out of it and we can build even better 
Accords from that. Yes. Uh, Canada has signed it though. So um, yeah, Canada is one of the one of the signatories for the Artemis Accords. Great. Okay, on that note, I think we should bring this podcast to a close. Um, I think this is a very exciting avenue. And I won't be surprised if in the near future we come back and do a couple more episodes about these, especially as the Artemis missions start to unfold and, and we start to see testing of the SLS or maybe taking things straight up to the moon for, for building things in the future. So yeah, thank you, Connor, for leading us through that. This was a lot of fun. Um, but that's all from us today. And we will see you next time with the James Webb Space Telescope. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Birth. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.